Welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guests today are Stephen Wertheim, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and Matt Duss, a visiting scholar at Carnegie and former foreign policy advisor for Senator Bernie Sanders. Stephen, Matt, welcome to the show. My pleasure. Thank you. You guys have written an essay in the latest issue of The New Republic, which serves as a kind of report card for President Biden's foreign policy. And in it, you write that progress under Biden has been incremental rather than fundamental. Before we get into the pros and cons of Biden's term so far, I'm curious what happens in your minds when you use those words? What are the kind of fundamental changes in contrast to incremental ones that you too would like to see in, in U.S. foreign policy? Sure. I mean, I can take a first shot at that. I mean, I think, I think, I think as we note in, in the piece, I mean, this is, and, you know, Biden and his team recognized on the campaign and the platform and sense that this is a, um, you know, a, a transformational moment in a lot of ways. America's relative share of power is diminishing. Um, you know, the, the unipolar moment is over, whatever cliche from Washington foreign policy cliche one would like to use. So at least at the rhetorical level, there's an understanding that, you know, U.S. foreign policy needs to be put on a much stronger footing uh, for the new era. Um, there's, a you know, some understanding that comes into that, too, with we stuff we've seen from Biden himself, but also from kind of key foreign policy advisors like National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, who've recognized, you know, the failure of the, the neoliberal you know, model of globalization and, and, and trade that has not delivered prosperity for, you know, huge numbers of Americans and the impact that has made on, on our politics, you know, and the basic responsibility um, of, of U.S. foreign policy, which is to, to deliver security and prosperity for Americans. So I think, you know, there's been an understanding that there's been this disconnect in a lot of ways between the way foreign policy is discuss, discussed and conducted from the lived experience of a lot of Americans. Um, I think the question that we get at in the piece, and, and obviously Stephen can say more about this, is, okay, how is that? how does that look in practice? Where are they focusing? Where are they really getting their backs into that transformation, and and thus far, do we see that this, you know how, how far does this kind of reinvention go, and and how how hard do old habits actually die? Yeah, and I've written elsewhere that I'd like to see the United States adopt a much uh, smaller political military role in the world and reduce its uh, forward deployments uh, and and security commitments. But in this piece, Matt and I really tried to judge the Biden administration by its own standards. Uh, so we were trying to judge them, you know, not by the ideal, uh, although our, you know, biases uh, always factor in, but largely by what the Democratic Party platform of 2020 actually said that Democrats wanted to do. And that was a pretty good process where uh, the party was able to uh, share insights from both wings uh, of, of uh, the Democrats and, you know, put together a pretty good consensus document that actually, I think, reflected a uh, sober look at where the United States is in the world. And then, of course, uh, a lot of events uh, have happened since Biden came in. And I think that's distracted the administration from some extent from from pursuing uh, some of the reformist insights uh, that that it put forward uh, in the campaign and especially through that platform. One of the areas of praise that you guys have for Biden is his withdrawal from Afghanistan, which was harrowing, but ultimately necessary. 
we'll get to the criticisms in a second, but where else do you think he deserves some credit? I mean, as we note in the piece, I mean, my, you know, I, I think he does deserve credit um, for the handling of, of Ukraine, um, which I think, interestingly, as you know, as someone who is kind of in the, I guess, restraint camp or at least restraint curious, <laughs> um, I, I think Biden's approach qualifies as restraint, um, certainly compared to what many in Washington um, have been urging him to do. Um, I think he's he's held back from some of that. Now that's it's all it's all relative. Um, but but I do think the way that he's, you know, the kind of as, as we talk about the kind of alliance management um, work in multilateral institutions um, in, in support of Ukraine's defense um, has been very adept. Um, so that that that's one area. I mean, I think there are a few other things I think, you know, at least, you know, if we're talking about the end of the kind of, you know, Reaganite Washington trade consensus, I think the support for a global minimum corporate tax is another very, very. Uh, important step that reflects that understanding. But again, this is where we start to get into, okay, how much how much of your energy are you really putting into to moving that forward? Biden has also somewhat quietly reduced drone strikes. Um, we, we say that he's not on track to end the war on terror, but nevertheless, I think there's definite progress over the last few years. You know, uh, a, a, a ceasefire was brokered in, in Yemen. And again, this is not an area where we give overall praise to the administration, but the administration has engaged diplomatically to try to resolve that that conflict uh, in a way that the previous one didn't. So I think there are some bright spots uh, in the administration. And just on on Ukraine, um, you know, I, I, I think we don't know fully what the administration tried diplomatically uh, in order to try to head off the invasion. But, uh, you know, the support of Ukraine, I think we have to say, as of now, has been quite successful uh, in avoiding a direct conflict, but also in allowing Ukraine to remain uh, independent. There are a lot of negatives, too. I think the sanctions have have not worked, and we need to take a very serious look at at what happened with those sanctions, which I think a lot of people understood were unlikely to have a positive effect, even when they were implemented. So it says a lot about our, our politics. Uh, that that the sanctions have been uh, applied in this cascade as they were. So, you know, things could end up very bad in Ukraine. Uh, we don't want to gloss over that. But uh, as of now, keywords as of now, I think that's a bright spot. Yeah, I'll just add quickly to that. I mean, first on, you know, drone strikes and the kind of broader war on terror, we have seen, you know, a shift in policy, uh, low, you know, really serious diminishing of the number of drone strikes. But again, that legal framework, um, as far as we know, uh, still exists for future administrations to take up. And while we do recognize, and I do think this was kind of, this is a key point, is yes, they've understood correctly that doing this stuff quietly and without fanfare is a way to avoid kind of messy uh, political fights and controversy. But at the same time, if we are trying to create a durable new consensus around America's approach, you have to wage and win those arguments in order to establish a new kind of legal and political consensus, um, and they and they seem to be avoiding that again, understandably. But I think I think there are consequences to that. And and the second point on on sanctions, and I do think that's this is something that we've seen in some of the response. And I think it's a very fair criticism is that we didn't spend as much time as we perhaps could have, or or, or mentioning the sanctions piece, um, not just on Russia but more broadly. Because um, even though they they did roll out you know a kind of sanctions reform agenda, 
Um, in practice, they are still as sanctions happy as any administration um, that we've seen recently. I mean, they, they've continued with Trump sanctions on Iran. We mentioned that they've, you know, they very likely have lost the Iran deal. Um, but I think, you know, really, really, you know, taking a hard look at the the use of sanctions, their impacts on civilian populations, and whether they are actually producing, you know, the kind of the kind of uh, change that we want to see, or whether they're just kind of this tool that we use to demonstrate that we are quote unquote serious um, about you know opposing bad governments, um, it still remains to be seen. So I think John originally asked us about the bright spots, and as you can see, we've devolved <laughs> very quickly yeah. into criticisms. In fairness, we did we did mention those, and then we moved on. <laughs> well, yeah, there was a lot in there, and I want to tease some of it out. Since we're on the the issue of sanctions, I'll start there. Um, you know, sanctions. My understanding, at least, is that the academic literature has been pretty clear that they're really they tend to be pretty ineffective. Um, they they aren't successful in changing the policies of the target regime in the direction that we would like. Um, the reason I think policymakers overuse them is because they're so politically useful. It sort of shows I can do something, here's me being tough, but uh, the effectiveness question is down the road, so I'll just get credit for this. Um, but lately, especially during Trump, when we started to sanction our European allies and try to pressure them which way and the other, you know, um, I think the words getting around the international community that the United States, which has the reserve currency, is using economic coercion as a matter of routine, and it's sort of uh, creating a global constituency that resents this. And, and that seems like it could present real problems down the line. Yeah, yeah I think that is a, that's a really key point. Um, you know, as, as to the efficacy of sanctions, I think you're right. I mean, the academic literature, let's just say at the very least, raises very, very serious questions about whether they actually produce the kind of con changes that, you know, that policymakers propose. I think there are some examples like for for like like Iran, um, where sanctions played a part. Sanctions were not the whole story. Um, but I think they did play a part in the kind of broad set of, you know, pressure and negotiation that won. Another big part of that was that the United States and its allies or specifically the United States finally arrived at what it saw as a concession on Iran's own domestic nuclear capability that that Iran had claimed for a long time, I think with some legal grounding uh, it was entitled to. But finally, the United States, you know, coming to uh, an agreement, you know, an, uh, you know, an, an, an off ramp that was realistic. And I think that is so again, this is a whole discussion to be had about when and how sanctions are useful. But I think your last point, John, is really important because what we've seen is that sanctions, especially under Trump, um, again, staying with Iran, are not necessarily a way of changing a, a, a foreign government's behavior, but in restricting and constraining future U.S. administration's diplomacy. You know, the you know, kind of the uh, the maximum pressure crowd was was very open that what they were trying to do was just pile on all kinds of sanctions that would create political headaches domestically. Um, for the next duly elected president and prevent that president from carrying out the policy that he or she had campaigned on. Um, and that, in my view, is, is frankly fundamentally undemocratic. So that's, that's bigger than just a sanctions problem. That just gets to the kind of nature of our foreign policy debate. The administration talked about doing a sanctions review that might lead to some much stricter standards and rollback of sanctions. And obviously, we're not seeing that. In the case of the war in Ukraine, I hope that future historians will take a close look at um, how and why 
the uh, uh, large-scale sanctions on Russia got imposed uh, at the start of its in- invasion? I think it's an interesting question. I actually wonder, you know, how many members of the administration thought that the sanctions would be effective in getting Russia to to stop its war. I suspect that there was a lot of skepticism, but there was a perceived need to be doing something that would impose costs on Russia. And initially, the assumption was that uh, Russia would achieve its military goals fairly easily and quickly in Ukraine. And so I think uh, there was a desire to do something that that would signal uh, punishment for Russia. But I do wonder whether if those decision makers had known that military assistance would be very effective, uh, not to mention, of course, Ukraine's own resistance to Russia's bungled operation, uh, whether they would have gone quite so far in imposing those sanctions so so rapidly at the beginning. I mean, I think just a, a last quick point on that. I mean, agree with everything Stephen said, but I would, I mean, there are, you know, we, we have to differ- differentiate types of sanctions and what they are focusing on as well. And I do think there's some evidence that, you know, the, some of the sanctions have, you know, prevented or at least slowed uh, Russia's ability to resupply and obtain certain materials to, you know, to, 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 to keep its, 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 its military going. Um, it's obviously not stopped it. Um, Russia is continuing to find other ways. And again, that could be one of the consequences here. Um, Russia does seem to have learned lessons from Iran's experience in running a decades-long sort of resistance economy under international isolation. Um, but again, I think I'll, I'll reference here a, a very good recent book by Agatha Demeray, which I'm going to be doing hopefully an event here at Carnegie in the next few weeks, uh, a new book called Backfire about U.S. sanctions and about how just the kind of reckless and constant use of these sanctions by the United States, as you said, John, not just on targeted regimes, but on our own allies, forcing them you know, to follow our preferred policy rather than their, their own democratically decided policy. Um, has created not only a lot of resentment, but a lot of the creation of alternatives um, and and workarounds, and that is going to have again very serious consequences for any any sanctions efficacy in the future. You guys offered some uh, a, a nod uh, of credit for the administration's approach to Ukraine, and I understand that we've aided Ukraine and undermined Russia's invasion without, so far at least, triggering major escalation or some kind of direct military intervention. On the other hand, there are risks uh, of adopting a logic of managing the war that deepens and and prolongs it. Um, And we've also doubled down on maintaining Europe as essentially a U.S. protectorate. And of course, many Americans are opposed to the costs of our indirect approach. Um, Stephen, you wrote in a recent Financial Times piece that Biden should have used the Russian invasion to encourage European defense autonomy, but instead he's done the opposite and increased Europe's reliance on the U.S. Can you discuss that a bit? Well, the Biden administration sent about uh, 40,000 U.S. troops to Europe over the past year uh, when it started to see Russia's invasion coming. Uh, That in and of itself is understandable, but, uh, you know, Europe experienced a real shock Um, as a result of Russia's invasion. And I think um, there's a pretty widespread understanding in the U.S. on both sides of the aisle here that the U.S. faces a risk of overstretch 
Uh, it's especially true now that uh, U- U.S. relations with Russia and China have become much more antagonistic over the past few years. Uh, and it would make sense to signal very strongly that the United States needs to shift the burden onto its European allies for European defense. This is something that European states uh, you know, clearly have the, the latent military capability to achieve the uh, you know, GDP of Europe compared to Russia. We're talking about you know, four or five times uh, the GDP at, at the most uh, conservative estimate, uh, even more if you use other uh, statistics. So this is something that can happen, but I think we're kind of caught in a bind because the Biden administration doesn't want to signal any kind of you know abandonment, uh, and that leaves Europeans with insufficient incentives to step up and start uh, you know raising their spending and most importantly. Uh, using that spending to uh, replace U.S. capabilities rather than actually lock the United States uh, more into a leadership role in NATO. Uh, and so I, you know, one of the things Matt and I may disagree on this, but, you know, I, I think it, it was not um, uh, wise for the administration to champion the expansion of NATO to, to Finland in particular, which, you know, has an 830-mile land border with Russia. Uh, to me, it's almost a kind of vote of no confidence in European defense, uh, since uh, Finland is is part of European defense arrangements. Uh, I think, you know, I understand, I, I think, what the administration was driving at, which was to uh, ensure a, what it called a strategic failure for Russia overall, even if Russia might end up making some territorial gains uh, as a result of of this conflict. So I, I, I get that impulse, but at the same time, this is a moment where the Russian military has been weakened, thankfully. Uh, it's bogged down in, in Ukraine. It's not going anywhere uh, anytime soon, uh, at least uh, we hope, uh, but it doesn't have the capability uh, even to to be terribly successful, it seems. Uh, in its own intended goals in in Ukraine. So this is actually a pretty good time, I think, to effectuate uh, the beginnings of a security transition where the United States would move to a supporting role in European defense, but not the leading role. That's not going to happen overnight. But I think Joe Biden is a pretty capable person if he wanted to, to try and, you know, ach- achieve this over the six years that he has remaining in his in his uh, potential time in office. As you guys mentioned earlier, uh, in, in a real sense, the global war on terror, so to speak, is still ongoing. Biden is still engaged in drone strikes. He's still citing very outdated legal authorities to engage in a kind of global war. Um, and I think this, the key point that you try to make on this in the piece, and I think this makes sense, is that those incremental kinds of changes on this front are dangerous because it leaves in place the architecture for a future president to continue these policies or even expand them. So what's needed is is kind of boldness um, to stop the ratchet effect, right? This this problem of crises in foreign policy 
expanding the power of the executive. And then once those crises end, you know, there's no contraction in the authority. Um, so if you read between the lines, why don't you think there's been more boldness from the administration on this front? Are, are they just overloaded with uh, other priorities? I mean, in basic terms, it's, you know, the cliche that where you stand is where you sit, you know, <laughs> you know, and when a, a lot of these folks were, were outside of government, they quite understood quite clearly and starkly, given who was the previous president, that these powers could be used, um, let's just say irresponsibly, and but recklessly. Um, but presidents, you know, the executive is, no matter who it is, is always going to be extremely hesitant to kind of constrain themselves or relinquish power. Um, Again, that's not the whole story, but I think that that is a big part of it. Um, As we referenced in the piece, there is legislation that has been introduced um, to deal with some of these issues. Um, If if, if there are concerns with the language of that legislation, that's a process that I know, and again, this is, you know, my my previous boss, Senator Sanders was one of the the sponsors of this, along with Senator Chris Murphy and, and, and Senator Mike Lee. Um, a, a very large bill, the National Security Reform Act, that dealt with not just the AUMFs, but the, a whole kind of uh, a set of authorities that the that previous administrations had been using. Um, you've also got the the two, the 2002 um, AUMF repeal for Iraq that Senator Kane um, has introduced multiple times and has said he will do again um, for a kind of a, a much smaller focus approach on this issue. But yet we've not really seen. Um, a willingness from the administration to really in, in, engage on this. So, yeah, I do think partially it's just kind of a bandwidth issue, uh, given the the number of concerns and crises they've got to deal with day to day. But I do think there is always going to be just kind of inherent aversion and and kind of allergy to to you know kind of as they would see it, kind of handcuffing themselves. Still, it's so remarkable that. You know, it's not that I can just I have to invent the specter of the next Trump or something. Literal Donald Trump is the Republican front runner and the only declared candidate for president. So, yeah, you stand where you sit, but like you're the, the Biden administration officials are sitting in chairs that could well be occupied by uh by somebody appointed by Donald Trump in just a couple years. And there was a whole lot of seemingly you know, soul-searching discussions about uh, the connections between domestic and foreign policy and the need to constrain executive power uh, in the years uh, prior to Biden taking office. And I'm just so struck by how the national security strategy, except for like one text box, would be seemingly written exactly the same had the previous president been a law-respecting, you know, Mitt Romney uh, and Donald Trump had never, you know, walked down the escalator. So um, it's quite something to me. I do think that, um, you know, maybe there's an opportunity in the next few years as the presidential campaign looms uh, to bring back some of these issues, including in Congress, where, you know, Republicans will control the House, but, you know, they have a Democratic president that they can try to seek to restrain. And Democrats, for their part, can look ahead to, Uh, a potential Republican president. Now, everybody on the Hill seems to tell me, oh, no, this is not a priority. This is not the right time. That seems to signal that there is no right time uh, for this kind of reform. But, you know, still, I I think it would this is potentially a a moment where 
uh, AUMF reform or something of that nature could uh, could move forward. So I'd certainly like to like to see that. What's the foremost reason the administration has failed to re-up the Iran nuclear deal? I, I think you, actually your last two questions come down to another factor also, which is um, domestic political timidity, from my point of view, on the part of the Biden administration. Uh, I think Biden has um, was reluctant to be criticized as weak on national security, as many Democrats are. I think that may have affected the early steps in an attempt to restore the Iran nuclear agreement, but not to give up the uh, Trump sanctions uh, as uh, as a first step, but instead to try to use those sanctions as leverage. Unfortunately, there was limited time before uh, the next uh, leader of Iran was going to to take power, as the administration knew, uh, and uh, that is part of how we get to uh, the the seemingly dead Iran nuclear deal that we that we have today. I also think that uh, the politics of the Afghanistan withdrawal have proved um, unfortunate. I think that the administration came away thinking that uh, restraint kinds of actions in foreign affairs are costly. Biden's approval numbers diminished significantly uh, over the course of the you know last month of the withdrawal, that said, the dip in his numbers preceded the beginning of intense coverage of of the Afghanistan withdrawal, and m- might have had more to do with uh, uh, COVID numbers rising after Biden had seemed to say that that uh, his measures had been successful in in being able to return the country to to some semblance of normalcy. So, um, you know, I think whatever the exact uh, reality of, of the Afghanistan withdrawal in terms of its uh, impact on, on Biden, uh, I, I think the administration unfortunately drew the lesson that it should be quite cautious in, uh, you know, doing similar kinds of actions in the future. President Biden himself thought that they could hold out. Um, not seem too eager um, and potentially get, you know, the Iranians to to do something. I'm not sure what. I mean, there's also, you, you cannot discount the fact that, at least from their perspective, they had to deal with some very conservative um, Democrats um, who they um, foresaw as potentially being problems on the issue. Um, I find that kind of wild, given the fact that Biden had been elected on an entirely unequivocal commitment to rejoin the deal um and, and and coming into office with with that at his back and then choosing to to wait as he did um I, I think we all see the consequences of it um so you know and there's also the fact that you know even though biden publicly had made a very strong case for why quickly rejoining the deal was the right move in a piece he wrote for cnn in october of 2020 um it, it it's clear that you know he was personally not super invested uh, in, in that approach that became clear very, very quickly. Um, so again, I think that is, and again, I, we've made, I think we made a point to, to just unequivocally say in the piece that he broke that promise. I mean, there's, there's just no way around that. He made a very clear commitment and he broke it. 
Um, it's not the only one, but I think it is potentially one of the most consequential. Yeah, that's a tricky one. Um, it's been a point of frustration for me because it seemed to me coming in that this was a kind of low-hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. they, they had the ability, especially with some concessions and a more flexible posture to get back in that deal. Um, but, and a better uh, Iranian government than, we, than they got by waiting. Right. Biden has repeatedly said he doesn't want a Cold War with China, but his policy repeatedly tells a different story. Uh, that's a quote from your piece. Um, and Stephen, in a recent in that in that Financial Times piece, you described U.S.-China relations as in freefall. Talk about the administration's approach to China and and fill us in on what you think would make more sense going forward. I think that actually this is the area where I would probably fault the administration or Joe Biden himself the most. It's so dangerous to play around with the Taiwan issue in particular. I mean, we're talking about the risk of World War III, no exaggeration here. And there's a good understanding, which Biden himself articulated in an op-ed uh, back in the George W. Bush years when he criticized George W. Bush for uh, getting the one China policy wrong. You know, I think there's a pretty good understanding of uh, uh, where China's red line lies here. Uh, and yet, um, you know, in a series of so-called gaffes, um, the president has misstated U.S. policy, saying that the U.S. has a commitment to defend Taiwan, that he would send U.S. troops to Taiwan if attacked by China, uh, and also said a few times that uh, the issue of Taiwanese independence is, is up to the people of Taiwan, which is not U.S. policy. The U.S. policy, the one China policy, which the White House says is also still intact uh, and hasn't changed, uh, says that the United States does not support Taiwan independence. Uh, that's not quite the same as outright opposing it, although several presidents have said that we outright oppose it uh, at, at various times, but we don't support it. So it's not just an issue that we think um, is up to Taiwan. So, you know, I think this is all contributing to um, an impression that some have in Beijing uh, that the one China policy lives on borrowed time, even if it is not going to be entirely overturned uh, in the Biden administration. Uh, and then that gets us, I think, closer to the possibility of a really ruinous conflict. Now, you know, absent that, and I, I think a lot of those uh those those statements are down to to Joe Biden, the individual. Uh, many in his administration, you know, don't say those kinds of things. In fact, the White House always puts out a statement saying, actually, uh, you know, we we really are following the the one China policy. So that's better than I guess breaking with the one China policy. Uh, but we should also look ahead to see what Republicans might do uh, with this with this opportunity uh, because senior members of the Trump administration have now said that they want to resolve strategic ambiguity uh, to make a clear U.S. commitment to defend Taiwan, uh, which I, I think would be quite risky and, uh, and destabilizing. And then on the economic front, you know, most notably, I think the Biden administration has uh, 
uh, put out a rule to uh, restrict uh, China from being able to import uh, advanced semiconductors. And, you know, I, I'm not against all, all forms of so-called decoupling that, that have occurred to date. Uh, I think there was a, a, a risk of Huawei if it were allowed to provide 5G networks around the world, uh, some national security risks there. But targeting uh, advanced semiconductors, it's just a kind of crucial uh, part of an advanced economy. And so I think that at least gives the impression, maybe unintended by some actors in the Biden administration, but nevertheless gives the impression that the United States wants to cripple the high-end development of China's economy. And again, um, we have to ask, what are the second and third order effects uh, of, of these moves? So on the other hand, you know, coming out of this year, uh, there was a high-level uh, uh, meeting between Presidents Biden and, and Xi, and potentially a, a prospect of um, renewed diplomacy in the next year or so. But now the politics of U.S.-China relations, the domestic politics uh, in particular, have gotten really terrible. And with the Republicans coming into control of the House, they've already uh, pledged to set up this uh, select committee on, on China with an avowed uh, aim of waging the Cold War against China, which is supposed to be a line of criticism that people who don't like a Cold War are supposed to be using. Now it seems to be uh, perfectly acceptable. So there's something I want to push back against you guys on on one part of your your piece, and 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 that's like basically what to how to organize U.S. foreign policy around something, you know. There's a couple of problems when we talk about shifting from where we are now and towards restraint. One problem is that foreign policy is pretty low salience for voters. You know, it's not a thing that people get driven to the polls for. And then the other problem is that without a crusade or some kind of ever encroaching enemy, it can be hard to gin up the energy for constant global warfare and, and nearly a trillion dollars in annual national security spending. And I've noticed that many of my allies on the left, you know, restraint-oriented people on the left, like everyone, I guess, are at a bit of a loss as to how to create political momentum towards restraint. And you guys kind of provided a perfect example of what I often see on the left, which is um, you know, you talk about things like trade and global corruption and uh, global minimum wages and minimum corporate taxes internationally and climate change and pandemics too. We'll talk about that in a sec. But it sort of seems like in lieu of a crusade, you guys are saying what we'll do is we'll extend the rhetoric of successful domestic initiatives to then give ourselves purpose and direction in foreign policy. And I just kind of wonder about the risks of giving new energy to new initiatives to our massive military industrial complex to, get, to then go and manage global affairs that way. Uh, do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's a fair critique. I don't know if I quite agree that's the argument we made because I, I certainly would share um, the caution around trying to redefine everything as national security. <laughs> I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I've written, you know, in the work I, I, I did with Bernie and 
is, you know, around the idea like, listen, you know, rebuilding America and, and doing things that promote our democracy here, strengthen our democracy here, that strengthen Americans' welfare um, is, you know, justifiable in and of itself. That is the number one responsibility of the United States government. That is a, our collective political project. Um, but I do think, you know, stipulating that, we can then turn to, okay, what is American foreign policy for? It needs to preserve and protect those things. And I think you can and should make an argument for how these different ideas and these different policies and initiatives globally um, um, either protect or expand, or at the very least, do not undermine um, those initial domestic goals. Um, but again, coming from this, as as I said earlier, um, as someone who is, you know, sort of within the restraint camp, but also as someone who identifies strongly as a, a left progressive, um, I take very seriously the idea of, of solidarity with, with, with people around the world. And so the way that, you know, looks to me is, you know, we have to take into into account okay how what are the impacts and consequences of these policies not just on us but on the communities that endure them um and again this is what i think has has kind of undergirded my strong critique of the global war on terror for many years um for the kind of you know neoliberal trade um um regime that at, that washington finally seems to be waking up and understanding has not really worked out all that well for lots and lots of people um, but still, that that's kind of an additional argument that I make, understanding that not everyone else in, in you know conservatives don't tend to see it that way. But but I think we can agree on the basic premise that you know domestic um, sec you know security and prosperity here in the United States is is what the United States government is supposed to uh, promote. I think you should like us more, John. Let me give you <laughs> let, let me give you two reasons. Uh, first of all. What we're saying is that the United States should act in the best interest of the United States, first and foremost. Um, we're not, you know, saying that it, we should be uh, selfish and that that should come at the expense of, of others necessarily. But, um, you know, we are, we think that climate change, pandemic disease, these are things that really do affect Americans where they live and work more than you know, most conventional military challenges. So that's why we think that, you know, you, the U.S. role in the world, U.S. foreign policy should be reoriented uh, around those, those challenges. And I don't think that that gives much for the military industrial complex to, to work with. I think actually it would lead uh, to problems for the military industrial complex, which is okay with me. Uh, let me make a second point also as to why you should like us. Uh, you know, the challenge that you would have, I think, in, in making uh, your appeal is that uh, the United States has a fairly kind of moralistic, can-do political culture. And I think Americans do care about America's general role in the world and even to an extent how we treat others and how they treat us. So these things do matter. And, um, you know, I think the idea of simply saying to people, well, let's focus on our own problems and let's basically do nothing around the world isn't one that is very appealing politically. Uh, so even, you know, if you even don't agree with us on the kind of substantive argument, I think there's a presentational and political challenge that um, 
that is tricky for restrainers. And I think here actually um, people on the left have have something to to contribute and hopefully something that's not easy for uh, folks in the military industrial complex to appropriate. Mr. Wertheim, you know full well, I got much love for you guys. The show works better if I ask probing questions, though. <laughs> oh, okay. uh, and for the last one, um, this is kind of a tough one, actually, uh, because even in my very limited government um, restraint-oriented view of, of foreign policy, you know, climate change is something we need to look at. But I do wonder how much of it is manipulable by by U.S. policy, you know. Um, it's a collective problem that can only be seriously dealt with through collective action. And first of all, I mean, trying to coordinate positive collective action in the international community, uh, especially if it includes some kind of self-sacrifice, is extremely difficult. The incentive structure works against it strongly. So what's a realistic way for U.S. foreign policy to address climate change? Yeah, I mean, I can take a shot at that one. First, I mean, first is just meeting our existing commitments. Right. I mean, the United States has been engaged in a number of agreements, including Paris Accord, um, that set some 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 goals. So work to meet those goals and be seen to be seen to be meeting them. I think that is that's first off a way of demonstrating that, you know, these these agreements should um, should be honored. I mean, that's going to have impacts just beyond climate. That's going to have impacts, I think, in the broader effort to deal with, you know, share challenge multilaterally. Um, I think, you know, in, in the developing world, in places like Africa, which are, you know, modernizing very rapidly, an extra, a very young population, um, they're going to be meeting some of these resource needs and, and infrastructure development already um, at, at, at a very, very steady clip. And then I think there's a good argument, not just for, you know, saving the environment, but also for, you know, for building real um partnerships um, with, with these countries and with these populations on the basis of renewable energy. Um, so I think those are just the two reasons why. Yeah, I think you could think about this on a couple levels. Like one is building a normative environment internationally that promotes uh, the green transition. Um, and, you know, I think the Biden administration has made some real strides building on the Paris framework, that's what that was about. We see even, you know, U.S. competitors like China be responsive to this, perhaps for their own reasons. But nevertheless, it's uh, not just in actions like China's uh, pledge to, to stop financing new brown energy projects uh, internationally, but also in the way, you know, the Chinese leadership has uh, staked its own credibility on being a positive uh, player on climate. Now, that's far from the case when China, the main problem lies within China, right, uh, with all of its greenhouse gas emissions. But I think, you know, that's that's a positive step to at least sort of change the, the normative climate and start to create uh, a uh, a race to the to the top rather than the bottom, and uh, we'll see what comes out of this uh, uh, build back better world initiative, uh, which will promptly be renamed uh, or shut down by the next administration. But but in the meantime, you know, I think um, being generous, not being punitive, uh, but rather uh, leading with provision uh, of resources to promote development in a green way. Uh, is is the best thing we can do with respect to the 
uh, global south uh, and could have other benefits as well. We've seen how much actually the United States has struggled to to uh, uh, gain support in the global south over the war in Ukraine. I think that's quite telling and should really be a wake up call for for U.S. Uh, policymakers. And so, you know, a lot of it, I think, has to do with our own uh, example and our own tangible actions in making uh, green investments at, at, at home. And that is something, you know, I think the administration deserves credit for. Um, it's not going to be a smooth process and we have to work out, you know, how this, how this works internationally, too, uh, so that we don't have big inefficiencies and uh, subsidy uh, races. But you know, I think that's kind of what's necessary to, to, to figure out how we actually uh, move to, to solve this problem. Stephen Wertheim, Matt Duss, thanks for coming on. Great to be here. Thanks, John. My pleasure. <laughs>